Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, June 20th, 2021. That's a lot of 20s. Happy Father's Day. Yes. To all the dads and father figures out there whatever role and shape they come in. Yes. Happy Father's Day to all of them. It's Brendan's first Father's Day, everyone. That's true. That's true. And it was very nice. Yeah. Our baby took a three-hour nap. It was amazing. Good times, (laughs) which we prepared for (laughs) Polyluck. Yes. And a happy Juneteenth to all those who celebrated this weekend. first federal holiday since Martin Luther King Day was established. That seems wrong on so many levels, but Yeah. Yeah. Also, happy Juneteenth. And we'll be talking more about that in the episode. But to begin us off, Naomi, let's start with show ratings. How would you rate the shows you looked at today? And what did you look at? Okay, so I looked at this week. I'm giving it a two. It was kind of a waste of my time. I didn't learn a lot. I So that's in the bad category. Correct. And then I looked at Fox News Sunday, which I would give a four, I think, overall. Mm-hmm. Okay job. And No, see, four is good. I know. Okay is three. I know. So is it, it okay four. or is it's it good? It's a four. Then it's good. It's a low-key four. Okay. I'm going to call you Issa. And then I looked at State of the Union, which I would give a five. So Fox News Sunday and State of the Union both did a good job, but I feel like State of the Union, for reasons I'm going to explain today, just executed the show better, point blank. How about you, Brendan? What did you watch? I took a look at Meet the Press. I took a look at Face the Nation. Meet the Press would be a four. It was a good episode. It wasn't a great episode. It wasn't a... You know, it was it was good. I mean, that's what it was. A four is a four. Okay. <laughs> and not a Loki four. Yes, yes, yeah. Just a four. Yeah. And then Face the Nation was okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There could have been more to it. There could have been more focus. And I think what didn't help either is that Chuck Todd did such a good job interviewing Fiona Hill, who is a national security expert on Russia, used to work on the National Security Council. So Chuck Todd did a great job interviewing her about Russian issues. And then John Dickerson interviewed her. And there was a lot less insight. Yeah, when those are same guests on different shows, and you're like, oh, it's the host that kind of dropped the ball. Yeah, that clarifies it. 100%. Not to say that Face the Nation didn't have good things, and we will talk a bit about that. Well, let's get to quality questionable. Exactly. I'm just going to start us off. I have the questionable... And it's the two hour long panel on this week. It was so long, Brendan. And that gave them a two. That's how Correct. That, that was the two big, stands for is two w- hours. <laughs> two hours of panel. Yeah, it was so long. 
And I get that it's like a weird news week or I don't know. But like there was not a single lawmaker booked on this week. It's like they called every single congressman and senator, all 535 of them and be like, nope, nobody's available. No worries. We have Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel. We're going to figure it out. I mean, there were also two journalists on the panel, too, like from ABC News. But still, way too long. I don't need pundits explaining to me the news. Just do the news. What the heck? Or explain it yourself. It was just too long. Too long. And you didn't appreciate their takes, it sounds like. Well, it's not even just their... (laughs) It'd be one thing if I didn't agree with Christy and Rahm Emanuel, but there was a compelling interview in which I could analyze something for myself, right? If the interview is missing then all I have are these pundit responses. That is not enough for me. So you think the show just could not book anyone and decided we'll just have a long panel instead of finding I don't know why. It expert? just, I mean, there's no way nobody was available. But I don't even care what the reasoning is. It was a waste of my time. All right. So that's the questionable. But you have a quality, right? Yes, my quality moment is actually, as I was mentioning, from Face the Nation. This was actually a really interesting segment where John Dickerson spoke. Now, as we've said before, John Dickerson likes to have his kind of like book club at the end of his episode. And this felt a little bit of like that, but more like it was about what it was about. And what was it about? It was about productivity. <laughs> uh-huh. It was about work and the changing relationship between workers and employers and John Dickerson spoke with a best-selling author, although he didn't really say what this guy had written. So I looked it up here. Uh, he spoke with a guy named Daniel H. Pink. He has written something like four books that are New York Times bestsellers, often about work. Some of the titles include Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, To Sell as Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving obje- uh, Moving Others, and win the scientific secrets of perfect timing. He also wrote a book in 2001, his first called Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself. And apparently he served as Al Gore's speechwriter when Al Gore was vice president. So that's rather interesting. But that's the guy, that's who he is. And the conversation was enlightening and thoughtful and surely, yes, we should expect work to change long term, potentially, based on the seismic changes that people had in their working life during the pandemic. Here is just one example of some of that conversation. This summer, American companies and their employees are thinking about and making plans to return to the office. To help us understand what that process might look like, we're joined by best-selling author Daniel Pink, who writes about business and human behavior. Good morning. What did we learn about remote work that we were wrong about or that people were wrong about when they previously thought people couldn't handle it? We were completely wrong about, about productivity and about trust. It turns out that most people in the workforce, you can trust. And I think that's an enduring lesson of this. And if we go back, as some CEOs are saying, saying, you know what? It's been a fun little experiment, everybody, but you better be back in the office or else, uh, or else you're going to get fired. I think that is, is tone deaf and a massive misreading of both the moment and the market. So we learned about trust. We also learned that 
that some face-to-face -face interaction is essential, but not all face-to-face -face interaction is necessary every single day. And I think what we're going to end up with on the other side of this is an enduring form of hybrid work. You mentioned what some CEOs are saying. Um, at Morgan Stanley, the CEO said, if you can go to a restaurant in New York City, you can come into the office and we want you in the office. So does that, um, it, it, is that going to stick or might some people who couldn't work at Morgan Stanley say, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else? You know, I think that, John, that kind of comment from uh, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, I think in honor of, of Father's Day is going to earn him a massive eye roll uh, throughout the workplace. First of all, people can be trusted. You have to default to autonomy so that people can, can configure the work the way they want to. It's also, especially for a finance CEO, a massive misreading of the market. What we have now is we have 5.8% unemployment rate, 3% unemployment rate for college-educated workers. As your earlier package said, we've got the highest quit rate in this entire century. And so when, I think when a lot of talented workers hear that kind of comment, they're going to say, okay, Boomer, I'm going to go work for Citi. I'm going to go work for some other bank. <laughs> so I think segments like this are really important to reframe the conversation around topics such as work and the economy and to remind people when there are when there's a new way of looking at something like productivity and working from home, we need to have segments like this so that the conventional wisdom shifts to something that is more akin to reality. When we know that, in fact, people working from home can be just as productive as people in the office, and then we need to update that understanding so that our policy conversations around work around topics of the economy can be based on a framework of reality and not old assumptions. Well, especially I think because CBS often has really interesting conversations about the economy, about different industries. Yes. And this is part of it. If we're often seeing Federal Reserve Bank chairs saying, this is what we're seeing, this is how people are spending their money, this is... then. I would trust that show to have a conversation about this is what we're seeing in how people work. It's like they're a trusted leader in this space. They should really lean into it. Yep, absolutely. All right, Naomi. Well, what do you want to talk about first, politics or journalism? So I'm kind of cheating this week because I am kind of combining the two because I have things to say in terms of how the shows covered the infrastructure negotiations and I have things to say about how lawmakers responded to those questions. So I'm kind of blending my segments. All right. Sounds good. So let's get into infrastructure. So my general comment is that if you're not following the infrastructure negotiations very closely, it's super complicated and it's very it's really easy to not pay attention and then maybe you try to pay attention you're like uh i don't get what's happening and you like kind of peace out and i think some of the shows don't do a very good job about kind of like pulling people back in or giving a real synopsis of where we are and some shows did a lot better than others and that's kind of really what i wanted to talk about is when lawmaking <laughs> when we're in the thick of it on a big policy proposal on a big 
priority of an administration. Like, what are our expectations for the news we consume to kind of help us follow along? Are we assuming people are just going to tell us in the end or if we're expecting them to keep us abreast as it goes? Like, how do those conversations, like, what does a good conversation look like, right? Right, yeah. How deep do we go into the process, right? Yeah, or like, is it just kind of summary? Like, there's so many different ways to go about it. And obviously, like, I'm not trying to make giant generalizations of there's only one way to do this, but some people did it really well and some people did like a crap job. So that's kind of my overall, like, Naomi Soto thoughts. Before I kind of dive deep into how the shows did, I thought it might be helpful for you and I, Brennan, to just kind of review what we know and how we've understood it. And that might help shape the clips that I'm going to share. All right. So the Biden administration really wants to pass a mega infrastructure bill. And it includes both physical infrastructure and what they call like human infrastructure. Right. So like child care, elder care, all that stuff. Mm hmm. Big priority for the, the Biden infrastructure of care. We heard. <laughs> I get like hear Chris Christie laughing about that term <laughs> in my head. Um, so yeah. So, but I will say the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of convincing at least me, with all the people on their, you know, coming onto the Sunday shows, that there actually is a, what you could call an infrastructure of care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's not the. Not, yeah, I agree. Especially Jennifer Granholm, she should negotiate yeah. for a pay raise. Okay. I don't think that's the case for secretaries. But anyway, um, so that's executive level Biden administration, the White House. That's what they have going Mm -hmm. in the Senate. They tried to negotiate with the White House. First round failed. And right now. So Republicans tried to negotiate with the White House. Right. Exactly. First version of that. Kaput. It's dead. There's a second group of bipartisan senators and they are trying to, there's 21 senators, and they're trying to come up with like a new counter proposal to ne- negotiate with the White House. Yep, a bipartisan proposal, yeah. Right. We'll talk about how much that proposal's looking at and, you know, the likelihood. And I feel like when people are following the news, if they're following very closely the political news, that's basically where the story ends. Right. Because you, we're looking and we're focused on the Senate, right? But there's another House of Congress. There's a version of Biden's proposal in the House of Representatives, but that version would never pass the Senate, right? So it's just kind of like sitting in the House side. Right, because it's kind of like the pure Biden wish list. Exactly. Now, there is also the Problem Solvers Group in the House. The Problem Solvers Caucus. Yes, the Problem Solvers Caucus. And it's essentially like, the replica or the the you know the same goals as the bipartisan group number two in the senate trying to come up with a counter proposal to the white house right so we have attempt one with the senate that crashed and burned there's like attempt number two and the bipartisan attempt that's kind of like slimmed down well there's like attempt two and then there's like the senate version and then there's the house version so you're calling them both attempt two Kinda. I mean, attempt two A, attempt two B, because they're like trying to do the same thing concurrently at the same time. Are they so coordinated? That when they bo- yes, they are. Okay. Yeah, they are coordinated. So that's attempt two, and then attempt three. I'm seeing a spreadsheet here. Oh my gosh, my heart like lives in spreadsheets. But I could make some like amazing charts for this. But anyway, attempt three, 
Brendan's just watching all my hand signals. Yeah. So attempt three is now the budget reconciliation bill, which is being led by Bernie Sanders, which the goal is, according to the, you know, some progressive Democrats, is that if they have to pass a slimmed down version of the infrastructure bill to have a bipartisan version, then at the same time, there should be a backup reconciliation bill that has all the other dream wish like wish list stuff and of course the reconciliation bill does not need to get any republican Republican support right in the senate so essentially you have attempt number two which would have all the physical infrastructure stuff and then they could say it's bipartisan they being everybody can say like look we accomplished something bipartisan but in the background there's also this third reconciliation bill just with democratic votes that has all the wish list stuff all this just to fill some potholes folks (laughs) which (laughs) no that third version joe manchin doesn't even want to do anyway right well i mean not just joe manchin i shouldn't say just joe manchin but there are some moderate democrats who aren't a fan of it so suffice it to say five minutes in this it's is super complicated. complicated it's so complicated okay so i keep going on and on my point being is i have a full-time job i'm raising this infant and trying to follow along depending on what show i listen to i got that i got those kind of different versions and how they impact each other which is impressive and in some shows i did not at all and if i wasn't following politics as closely as i do i would not understand what's happening and that's my whole point of my long-winded intro first of my three shows who did it super poorly is this week which is no surprise because they didn't have any lawmakers on who are actually working on this bill it did or, some... or one of the bills right yeah there's so many versions uh, right there's so many co-sponsors you could have found nope they did not so it did start out decent here's john carl in at the start of the show kind of giving a decent like explainer about what joe biden is coming back to in washington he faces two paths both riddled with obstacles. A bipartisan deal, small enough to get Republican support, but not big enough to keep Democrats united. Or a go-it-alone-and-go-for-broke plan that progressives want, with a price tag as high as $6 trillion that's likely too big to pass. Okay, a couple sentences, missing a lot of details, but pretty close. Too big to pass sounds like too big to fail. But the part where this whole giant multiple versions is explained is on the panel by Rahm Emanuel, who is neither a journalist nor a lawmaker. Unacceptable. I actually think, to tell you the truth, what this will do is probably push them, uh, as the Democrats try to figure out, because I think this deals with infrastructure. There's like three negotiations going on simultaneously. There's an executive legislative branch a Democrat-Republican negotiation, and a Democrat-Democrat negotiation. And he's going to be part of the reconciliation because McConnell keeps stiffening him. Break well, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. This, I want to, I want to happy Father's Day to all of you. What Ron was just talking about, that mm-hmm. bipartisan bill, which is about a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, the Democrat, progressive Democrats want about $6 trillion. One of the big questions now is which direction is President Biden going to go? Yeah, that's, that's the big decision for him right now. If he chooses the bipartisan route, which, again, he doesn't want a gas tax and that's what they're talking about right now so we don't even know if he's going to choose the bipartisan route if he chooses that he has to be sure and and the democratic leaders have to be sure that they're going to have a reconciliation bill teed up 
right alongside it, because if they don't, those progressive lawmakers are not going to be on board and vote for that bipartisan bill. Sanders, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is not a hard no on the bipartisan bill. He's a no if that reconciliation bill isn't teed up right alongside it, moving simultaneously with a lot of what they want, whether it's climate provisions, some are talking immigration reform proposals now inside reconciliation. That's all getting crafted. So if it isn't together, then you're going to have problems with progressives. Okay, and that latter voice is Laura Barron Lopez. She is on the ABC News team. She's actually the political White House correspondent. So good for her for kind of like explaining what Rahm Emanuel was talking about. But like, it's so weird that this is happening on the panel. It Like, you don't explain, like, I don't expect things to be deeply explained to me on a panel. Yeah, I mean, it's... Sometimes if there's an expert panel where it's right. like we've invited, you know, these two or three lawyers in to talk about the latest thing, the, the latest police reform or right, whatever. Right. Then, yes, that that can work really well, I think. But, yeah, you're right. We don't usually expect the basic mechanics of what's going on to be a fact finding mission that we go into in the panel. It's usually framed by someone like John Carl or through an introduction to an interview or, or within an interview. Yeah, so I think it really like kind of screws with the viewer's expectations of the type of information they're going to get and what information to trust or assume to take kind of take at face value. Well, and I think this actually uncovers a potential really big problem with the idea of a panel that has both journalists and political strategy. And this was also at the top of the show, by the way. It's not like it happened at the end. Oh, you're and, saying it's at the beginning of the panel? Yeah, it's at the beginning. The panel is at the beginning of the show. Oh, oh, okay. But yeah, I mean, when if you're a viewer watching a panel and they spend, and believe me, we know because we try to catch everyone's name, they spend, you know, 15 seconds explaining who's on the panel. If you're a viewer and you're watching the show, you're like okay, this person has a good point. Are they a journalist? And what they're saying is probably based on reporting? Or are they a political operative? And their their opinion or is really opinion. It's not really what's actually happening. Yeah. It gets very because confusing as a viewer. Like, you know what to expect if it's just like, oh, the panel's full of Democrats and Republicans and you're just watching your side. But if it also has a bunch of journalists on it, then it's like, oh, so then this is informational? Like, wh- it's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm a- surprised we haven't raised attention until episode 227. <laughs> well, and this is immediately after... Rahm Emanuel and Chris Christie are going back and forth of whether or not Biden was successful in his meeting with President Putin. And so the the tone is just all over the place, you know, in terms of like accusations and defenses, explanations, like all mixed up and jumbled together. It's very confusing, very bad, not great. So not great situation for this week. It was a smidge better. That's not true. It was better on Fox News Sunday. It wasn't great, but it was better. Chris Wallace interviewed Lindsey Graham and I thought had like decent questions. Take a listen to the first question in which he asks about the bipartisan group that Lindsey Graham is representing to begin with. You're a member of the so-called bipartisan group of 21, which is 10 Democratic senators and 11 Republican senators who've come up with a roughly one trillion dollar package 
on infrastructure. A couple of questions. First of all, how close are you to a deal with the White House and what's the effective deadline for reaching an agreement? Well, I think I'm the newest member, so I got a call from Rob Portman, would you like to join the group? And I said yes, because I'd like to get something done. I think the difference between this negotiation and the earlier negotiation is that we're willing to add more new money to infrastructure uh, in this package. And uh, I am hopeful if the White House and Joe Biden stay involved, we can get there. He then goes on to talk directly to President Biden as if president biden is president trump and it was a little weird and, and like watching the show yeah like oh my oh, god i better get my notes from lindsey graham he's graham, graham used to do that all the time like to donald trump 50 percent of the time he was on the show listen donald <laughs> but but i appreciated one saying like how this group was different than the previous one that's actually like the only time i saw that distinction that important fact that they're willing to put in more new money what i thought Chris Wallace did well is exploring how Republicans are feeling about this reconciliation bill that's happening concurrently on the Democratic side. Democrats on the left say, again, on the left, say that the only way they'll agree to this bipartisan (laughs) infrastructure package is if there is another separate, much bigger, maybe even $6 trillion spending and tax package that would be passed on a straight party line vote through the Senate. Take a look. I think it would be very difficult to find the votes for that in the House unless there was a simultaneous movement and agreement of the full reconciliation package with 50 votes in the Senate. Question, Senator, would you support, will you support an infrastructure compromise with Democrats if you understand that at the same time they may pass a separate $6 trillion spending and big tax package uh, on a straight party line vote in the Senate? That could be very problematic. Uh, I'm going to sit down and talk with my colleagues, but $6 trillion being spent through reconciliation is more money than we spent to win World War II. Infrastructure to me is roads and bridges and ports and electrical vehicles are fine. I don't want to raise taxes to pay for it. But the gas tax hasn't been adjusted for inflation, the federal gas tax since the 1990s. I would be willing to do that. An infrastructure bank is on the table using unspent COVID money. So this is interesting, right? So this is exploring what are Republicans going to do if are they going to honor their bipartisan offer if the Democrats are working on this backup reconciliation bill at the same time? Are they going to kind of be willing to vote on a smaller physical infrastructure bill if the Democrats are just going to pass something anyway on the human infrastructure stuff? Which is allowed within the rules, to be clear. Nothing shady is happening. Just kind of people's feelings are hurt. Yeah, well, it's kind of like Republicans. Do you want to be a part of this or not? It's kind of like uh, they're sitting down for dinner and they're like, look, we're going to order a bunch of food. Do you want anything? No? All right. Well, we're still going to order food one way or another. Yeah, but like... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the lamest <laughs> references I've ever done. <laughs> but, it's, but like, it's funny you say that because Chris Wallace has a follow-up. He's like, yeah, 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 but where do you stand? So take a listen to, I think, a simple but important follow-up if you're not totally clear about what's happening. So just to button this up, you're saying that you could not vote for the compromise in one area if there's this other big spending and tax package in another. 
That would be a problem for me. I'll have to talk to the rest of my colleagues, but that is a that would be a very big sticking point because six trillion dollars is more than we spent on World War II. And what they're calling infrastructure, the right. liberal left, to me is not remotely related to what's traditionally been called infrastructure. It's just it's just a power grab by the Democratic Party in every area of our lives. So I'm always so curious as to where and how Lindsey Graham and Lindsey Graham as type of lawmakers get these like one-liner facts and how they get so obsessed with them. This six World trillion dollars. World War do- II, yeah, the winning si- World War II. Yeah, the World War II costs less than six trillion dollars. <laughs> it's just, it's such a stupid comparison. But anyway, he was a fan of it this week and he wanted to use it. But that's times. less than it cost a, that's more than it cost to build the pyramids. <laughs> But but my point being, Chris Wallace saw Chris Wallace asked an important question about what Republicans were going to do. Lindsey Graham asked answered it in a very long winded way. But Chris Wallace still saw that it was really important to kind of get the clarification because it will determine how seriously to take this threat of the Democrats reconciliation bill. Right. Yeah. And it's important to have that follow-up yes. question. So even though Graham provided really no new information, yeah, no, the zero new information. Like he's like, well, it's problematic repeat, for me. I'm just going like, to repeat the sentences I said before. Well, if it's problematic, maybe you shouldn't vote for it. <laughs> I mean, you, maybe you shouldn't vote for the six trillion dollar thing, right? I mean, <laughs> that's his option. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, that's not the question. It was, are you still going to vote for the? I know, I'm yeah, aware. Yeah, so. Important questions, weird, very Lindsey Graham type answers, but very important questions in the interview itself. I also wanted to make one, add one more clip from Fox News Sunday, and it was, I thought, an important clarification from Susan Page, again, a journalist on the panel. Susan Page pretty much is like, everyone needs to hold their horses. There's a lot of temperatures flying, and she gave kind of like a reality check synopsis. So, Susan, you, uh, you solved this for us. One, what do you think of the chances of this bipartisan deal? And, you know, I I thought it was interesting that Lindsey Graham said, I'm not going for the bipartisan infrastructure deal if they're then going to pass a multi-trillion dollar reconciliation bill on a straight party line vote. So what are the chances for that compromise? And if it all falls apart, what are the chances that Biden can get through uh, a big tax and spend package when you've got people uh, on the center that are saying it's, it's too much and people on the left saying it's not enough? You know, it's always safer to bet on stalemate and gridlock. But actually, I think this, these bipartisan negotiations in the Senate are pretty encouraging. I think you heard that tone from Senator Graham in your interview with him. Eleven Republican senators. Uh, that is that is uh, a stronger bipartisan showing than we've seen in the negotiations that took place in, in the past. Um, and, you know, we, you, you showed Speaker Pelosi. She's been in a situation like this before with passage of the Affordable Care Act, where she had to push an unpopular version of that through the House in that final vote uh, with a written commitment from senators that they would pass a follow-on bill that did some things that, that House 
Democrats, uh, more liberal Democrats wanted to see happen. And she did that. It's it's a hard thing to do. Uh, you have to thread a needle. Uh, but I guess I am more optimistic than the others on the panel that we're going to see a bipartisan deal get through and then a follow on reconciliation bill. Now, it's not going to be six trillion dollars. That is the Bernie Sanders wish list. But a bill that is two trillion to follow on bill that's two trillion dollars, that is still a substantial amount of money. Yeah, this rings true to me, at least from what I heard on the other panels, that there does seem to be a lot more life to this bipartisan deal than most people expected. Yeah, and I think it's important to kind of know why it's different this time around. I think it's valuable to kind of see that there are other kind of negotiations that are happening to make it possible and that it's not all like all or nothing and people have to bet on those two options. So well done to Fox News Sunday. Good questions. Good voices. Now, the show that did the best was State of the Union. Dana Bash was the host today, and I thought she just did a stellar job from the intro to multiple interviews. Take a listen to how she summarized this all. The president says he will respond tomorrow to a bipartisan $1.2 trillion proposal to overhaul America's roads and bridges that is picking up momentum in Washington. 21 senators from both sides of the aisle now say they support it, but many on the left worry the deal leaves out too many of their priorities on issues from the climate crisis to caregiving. And while those bipartisan negotiations could continue for weeks, Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders is working at the same time on a separate reconciliation bill he hopes Democrats could pass without any Republican support. Now, Sanders' bill will include many of the Democrats' big policy goals. So many of these goals, in fact, that the potential $6 trillion price tag is making some moderate Democrats squeamish. As the president and Democratic leaders try to navigate competing desires inside a razor-thin majority in order to pass much of the Biden agenda, as much of it as possible. Now, that is much longer than we've seen before and has so much more color and detail that you kind of really understand like, okay, the bipartisan bill is really moving forward. Biden's going to respond to it, but it's not everything. And then there's this like backup plan. And even the backup plan is not that safe of a backup plan. So I think it was actually a really great get by State of the Union to book Senator Bernie Sanders. I think he's an important player here who is going to be influencing a lot what's happening. Take a listen to this important question by Dana Bash in which she asks him, what is his role and how does this fit with everything? But there is this compromise infrastructure plan. I know you don't support it. But it's all part of this complicated balancing act that you are a a part of trying to keep afloat. Uh, Fellow progressives say that they won't back that bipartisan bill unless they know that their priorities will be covered in what you are working on. The the moderates whose votes are essential to passing what you come up with, uh, uh, Senator Sanders, are reluctant to to support a big price tag. So can you just take us through that process? How do you thread the needle to satisfy everybody in the Democratic caucus. Well, that's what uh, Majority Leader Schumer and I are working on right now, and it's it's not easy. You got 50 uh, different uh, Democratic senators in the caucus, each have their own uh, priorities, but we got to bring people together. Uh, the bottom line uh, here is that the bipartisan proposal uh, provides spending in some very important areas: roads, bridges 
water systems, and that's the good. That's good. The amount of money that they are proposing is about one quarter of what the president talked about in terms of new money. That's not adequate. And what we should be also watching carefully is how it is paid for. What the president has said, quite correctly, is he doesn't want to raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. I agree. In this proposal, which their bipartisan proposal like ours is still in flux, they're talking, some people at least are talking about raising the gas tax or mm -hmm. a fee on electric cars or maybe privatization of infrastructure. Those, to my mind, are bad ideas. So I thought... This is a fantastic question to kind of summarize again to the audience what the paths are, what his role is, and just how precarious everything is and how he's trying to kind of really placate all these competing interests. And I thought Bernie Sanders here gives a really honest answer that he's trying to meet the Biden administration. He's trying he appreciates the changes of the bipartisan offer but that there's still issues, right? Like there's a lot of parts that are covered and it's not talked about in a way that makes it so complicated that you can't follow along. Like good question, solid answer. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, he was actually on one of my shows. I'm going to talk a little bit about his visit on Meet the Press. Oh, interesting. And kind of some conversations in this similar area. But it was interesting to hear an interview from Bernie Sanders where he is this transparent about the difficulty of the role he has in the political maneuvering that's going on right now. Because he often is, I, I half expected his answer to this question to be, I'll tell you what's hard, Dana, is the, is the American people, I mean, he did, the struggle that they have every single day to fight. It that's what's hard. It wouldn't be a Bernie Sanders interview if it didn't have a little bit of that, which it yeah. did. It definitely did. But it's funny you mentioned that, Brendan, because Dana Bash had a question of like, you've been such a voice for the progressive democratic movement, and now you are a negotiator. Like, how does that work for you? And he was like, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like a better answer, but he's like, I'm doing my best, and it's good to have Biden working with But it was, yeah. it, it really did note the different role he has. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you it's think huge. about his career, historically... He's um, never played a role like this. Yeah, most of his career has been, you know... On the sidelines. Yeah. yeah. Protest votes and raising important issues, but not being able to, to push it yeah. past the f finish line. So just one last clip from State of the Union, and then I'm going to wrap it up, I promise. And th those are all my clips for today. But it's <laughs> the other interview that Dana Bash had that I thought was actually a really great get. It was the co-chairs from the House Problem Solvers Caucus. Again, this is kind of the bicameral group, the bicameral bipartisan group that's kind of trying to create a bipartisan offer or counter offer to the White House. And so she spoke with Democratic Congressman Josh Gothheimer from New Jersey and Republican Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania. And they describe why it's important to pass this bill and, and why it's still really valuable, why the American people are still expecting Congress to actually compromise and do something. That bipartisan group of senators, which is now up to 21, they've signed on to a $1.2 trillion compromise framework for infrastructure. As I mentioned, I know you two have been involved in crafting this as well. Um, your fellow progressives, for example, 
Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says she's unlikely to support it, just as Senator Sanders did. Um, for her, it's about not going far enough on issues like the climate crisis. So what's your response to that? Well, I think, and Dana, thanks for having us. You know, the Problem Solvers Caucus, which are 29 Democrats and 29 Republicans, a couple weeks ago put out our framework called Building Bridges. It's $1.25 trillion over eight years. And it's focused on roads, bridges, rails, water infrastructure, resiliency, uh, items like uh, electric vehicles and carbon capture. So many things that are, I, I believe, really in line with, with friends in my party. And obviously working very closely with Brian Fitzpatrick, who's here, uh, build, building a bipartisan package that we believe can get done, working together, working closely with our Senate colleagues. This is about physical infrastructure and something that's urgent, that needs to get done. And we've got bipartisan support for it. So what I'd say to anyone, uh, I, I e I'm eager for them to actually look at the package to see what we've put forward and working close with our senators and our bicameral senators and bipartisan group that we're working with, I believe we can get this done. Pretty much begging <laughs> his colleagues to just like let them do the work and at least to see what the offer includes before making any judgments. But really yeah. important voices here, this co-chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus pretty much having very different priorities and objectives than what Bernie Sanders is trying to create, but is all kind of layered on top of each other in terms of the motivations for certain people in Congress to be excited for something or not. Yeah, this is all excellent detail, and it really paints a very multifaceted picture of what is going on through this episode of State of the Union. Yeah, so you see my frustration, right? When, like, this week has Rahm Emanuel saying, like, there's three negotiations happening. I'm like, who the hell? Like, why am I, like, supposed to trust Rahm Emanuel's summary of where we are on this, like, major infrastructure deal as opposed to people actually working on it? So if you watched only this week... I'm sorry. <laughs> if you watch State of the Union, I think you have a pretty solid understanding of what's happening. My last comment is, I don't even know if everyone needs to know everything that's happening on this as the negotiations take, negotiations take place. I think right. Like this is a huge burden to put on like the average news consumer to follow this all so closely. So there's also that. But if you are going to follow along, follow the journalist who's going to good do a good job in summarizing it for you. Now I'm really done. <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, I do think that there is an open question to how much detail the shows should devote to this type of conversation and whether there are other topics that might demand more attention or might be an opportunity for them to dive deeper into and just kind of like cover this in a smaller way but yeah i don't know i i mean i think that's warranted to explore and i'd be curious to see and hear from shows about how they do that yeah and how they make those decisions yeah not easy but what's not winning it is spending your entire show talking about the topic but not having any insight exactly or any any the voices of anyone who's actually doing the work or putting any work into a segment to help explain it just Especially on Sunday morning. If this was right. like a Wednesday night cable news show, I think I'd feel differently. Right. But Absolutely. not on Sunday morning. Yeah. This is a once a week show. Do better. This week. That's who we're talking yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, let's talk about something else. What do you want to talk about? Well, since the audience clearly hasn't had enough about this infrastructure topic, 
I thought I would begin with my something about politics, but I will preface it by saying it is not really about infrastructure. It's actually about just good questioning. And I know I'm, I might be a little cheating here because that could be something one might say belongs in the journalism section, but <laughs> I have something else in the journalism section. So, and I only have two sections. So this is the politics <laughs> section and this is something happening in politics. I mean, all these great questions are related to politics. In fact, one might say that these are political shows that we... You could say anything we pull is... Yeah, related to yeah. politics. It's very rough. It's very rough. Anyway, great questions. Chuck Todd actually did a really good job today asking questions, and that's great because it's a large part of his job on this it's show true. is to ask it's good really questions. It's really a significant part of his job description. Booking is really important as well, but I just want to point out this because Chuck Todd doesn't have the reputation for being, you know, an excellent questioner. You know, we think about him as being very passionate about politics. He very early had a lot of data focused. You know, he was kind of like their data guru. They being quite NBC a while. News, yeah. 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 And now he's political director. And he's the person who comes on and gives, you know, commentary whenever something's happening in politics. And people like John Dickerson, for example, who worked as a White House correspondent, had has his like Dickersonian style questioning, and we often give Dickerson a lot of credit for his questioning. But Chuck Todd today exhibited some really, really good questioning strategies. And I wanted to dive into that. And there's three specific examples I want to talk about with you, Naomi, and maybe we can dissect it a little bit and think about what makes it good and what makes it effective. Now, the first one is kind of an easy one. This is Chuck Todd sticking with Bernie Sanders, asking the obverse of the question that we heard asked by Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday when he was speaking with Lindsey Graham. Take a listen. You, I think you'll recognize it. Chuck Todd just stuck with Bernie Sanders, asking again and again and again, trying to get a straight answer. Appreciate that. Look, uh, you said on Monday that you weren't going to support this bipartisan uh, infrastructure deal as it stands right now. What would it take for you to support this deal, um, particularly if President Biden starts to sign off on it? Um, what would it take, uh, even if you don't love it? Well, Chuck, look, what we have got to do in these budgets is address the crises facing the American people. It is true that our roads and our bridges and our water systems and our wastewater plants are crumbling and we need to invest in them. As I understand that the so-called bipartisan plan really only provides about 25% of the money that the president asked for, about $580 billion got to do. Are you comfortable with a two-step process where you do, you, you, you noted, this is the 25% uh, about of what, of what President Biden asked for. Is it worth it in your mind to take what you can get in a bipartisan way, especially if that's the way you can get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to get on board a, a Democrats only bill that may tackle the care economy, as you just outlined? Well, look, as I said, what is in the bipartisan bill in terms of spending is from what I can see mostly good. It is roads and bridges, and we need to do that. That is what we are proposing in our legislation, but in much greater numbers. Uh, one of the concerns that I do have about the bipartisan bill is how they are going to pay. 
uh, for their proposals. And, and they're not clear yet. I don't know that they even know yet. But some of the speculation is raising a gas tax, which yeah. I don't support. I want to go back because uh, you kind of ducked the question the first time. Uh, would you support or at least vow not to kill the bipartisan deal if you got a commitment from the president and the and some of those centrist senators to support uh, a, a larger attempt to sort of a part two Democrats only reconciliation bill? Well, Chuck, I don't know that anybody could give you an honest answer for that because nobody really knows what is going to be in this bipartisan agreement uh, and how it is going to be paid for. So if it is roads and bridges, yeah, of course we need to do that. And I support that. If it is regressive taxation, gotcha. you know, raising the gas tax or a fee on electric vehicles or the privatization of infrastructure, no, I wouldn't support it. But we don't have the details right now. So good for Chuck Todd sticking with it. Three times he had to push Bernie Sanders to get to an answer. And you'll notice, Naomi, this is very similar to the question that was asked by uh, by Chris Wallace to Lindsey Graham. Yeah, just kind of, you're, you're totally right. It's the reverse of the same yeah. situation. Yeah, it's like, Lindsey Graham, will you support the bipartisan bill if they are going to do a reconciliation? Bernie Sanders, will you support the bipartisan bill if you don't do a reconciliation? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's clear why that's a good question and good job of Chuck for sticking with it because he often will just, and often a lot of these hosts will let people skate on by with saying words, but not an answer. Especially if the, the words sound passionate, right? Then like yeah. you have, you, you definitely feel a certain way about that. It's like, that's not an answer. But I feel like Chuck Todd was like, this was the goal of the interview. He wants yes. the answer to this question. That's very true. Which is, you know, makes sense considering where Bernie Sanders has placed himself during this negotiating process. But take a listen to this question. I think this is a great one, too. This is Chuck Todd speaking with Republican Senator Rob Portman, who is a member of the Group of 21. Important to do it. There are many uh, Democratic activists whispering in the White House's ear going, don't trust the Republicans. Mitch McConnell's going to pull the rug out from under them. And suddenly you think you have 11 Republicans uh, and then the deal dies or this is being dragged out. Um, how committed is this group of 11 Republicans to stick and buy this deal, even if Mitch McConnell says he can't vote for it? I think we're absolutely committed to it. And I think there's a number of others as well on both sides of the aisle. Uh, last week, I heard from a lot of my colleagues saying, I just need to look at one other issue. You know, can you do this? Can you do that? But uh, there's, there's a lot of interest in having a bipartisan proposal. And Chuck, this is uh, growing the vote from the middle out. So I think this is a very astute question from Chuck Todd, and it's a very helpful question for the audience to remind the audience that, look, something might look good when you're just talking to the people doing the negotiations, but don't forget the person who's on the sidelines and carries a lot of the, you know, is like the coach, right? I mean, the coach of the Republicans, if we're using this sports analogy, is Mitch McConnell. So the players might all be lined up, but if the coach is like, uh, no, we're not, we're not running that play, then it's not going to happen. I really appreciate Chuck Todd asking directly whether there's any chance that this will fall apart when someone who's not even on the field itself stands up and, and has his say. We're really sticking with the sports analogy. And I'm very proud of myself for, for sticking with it. All I'm imagining right now is 
Ted Lasso. (laughs) (laughs) And my thinking is like Rob Portman is Ted Lasso in this situation. Oh, wow. But but McConnell would be like the owner Uh who could make some changes in the teams in the background without it asking anybody. If you haven't watched Ted Lasso, you should definitely watch it. Season two coming up in uh, about a month, I think, here. That's not a paid sponsorship. <laughs> that would be great, though. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> it's apparently like the most loved show in Washington right now. It's Washington like, State or Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C. Like, it's there's lots of bipartisan love for that show. There should be. It's good. Yeah, absolutely. I want to point out, like, we need to see more questions like the one Chuck Todd just asked Senator Rob Portman. Questions that say, look, come on, give me a break. Is this really going to happen? You know what I mean? I want that style of question. Well, also, Rob Portman doesn't even sugarcoat it. And he says, yeah, like, this is how people are thinking about it. It's, it he doesn't ignore the fact that, yeah, in other situations, McConnell could have totally wiped everything out. He's saying that's not going to happen here. Yeah, very true. And finally, I want to underscore totally different topic, not on infrastructure, but also a good question from Chuck Todd when he was speaking with Fiona Hill. Now, Fiona Hill served on the National Security Council under Donald Trump, right as Trump was getting ready to go to Russia. And she also testified during the impeachment of Donald Trump. One of them. I can't, I don't know which one I would imagine the the second one. It was the second one. No, it was actually the first one. Was it? Yeah, it was the first one. The second oh, that's one right. Was, yes, the first one. The second one was about January 6th. Right. First one was about Russia. Right. But she also apparently briefed Joe Biden before his visit with Putin. So she's very much involved in this stuff. She knows what the hell she's talking about. And she was on both Meet the Press and Face the Nation this week. Chuck Todd, I felt, did the best job in the interviews. And it's because... He stuck with some questions that remind me of the one that we just heard about Mitch McConnell, which is, let's just cut to the chase. Why can't we get Putin to do what we want him to do? And I feel like Chuck has asked this question in various guises to others who have been on the show in the last few weeks. But Fiona Hill actually provides a really good example. What are we miscalculating on our ability to to sort of punish uh, Putin or change his behavior. Because if I look back on the last decade, there's actually been a quite a, a bit of an array of attempts, whether it's embarrassing him at, uh, in front of the International Olympic Committee, the Panama Papers, uh, the various sanctions. It, it, it isn't if we haven't tried new things and haven't tried to do this, and it, none of it seems to, to work. Why? Well, look, you have to have a very clear red line and a very clear unified response. Some of our problem is our own inability to have collective action. And the previous segments this morning, you know, show part of that problem. We've got so much partisan infighting that we can't even agree on what should seem to be some simple things like an infrastructure bill for anyone who's riding around, you know, in their car anywhere in the United States. Filling potholes should be a, you know, a fairly simple thing to do. So it's the collective action. It's the fact that we can't get Congress uh, to work together on foreign affairs and national security as well as on domestic fronts. It's our inability sometimes to work with our allies because often we've been at odds with them. But the thing is, it does actually work. I'll give you one episode that did work with Russia. Mm -hmm. And it's not a very pleasant one. But everyone will recall in 2018, there was an incident in Syria. 
Our right. military was very clear to the Russian military, you fire on our guys, we'll fire back. So the Russians tried co covert subversive action by putting in some paramilitary forces, a militia, the Wagner Group. They shot at our guys pretending to be rebels. They got shot back at. And the Russians accepted that they'd overstretched uh, the right. mark, that they'd gone over the red line, and that this was a massive mistake. That's the kind of action and response that we need to be able to set up. So we have to try to find that in cyber as well. We, it's no good telling the Russians what we're going to do and sure. reporting on it all the time. But what we have to do is make a clear red line and then have a response that they know why that response happened and that then they have to recalculate. That's a stellar response. Yeah. Especially when, to have an example that's not like eight years old, especially. Mm -hmm. Saying something a couple of years ago, this is this is what we did well, and this is how it led to the thinking on the Russian side. Yeah, absolutely. She had lots of interesting insights, and I feel like Chuck Todd was able to invite her to share a lot of those insights and those answers. Another point she made that I thought was super interesting was the point that it's been widely assumed that Vladimir Putin was very pleased with President Trump's administration. However... As she points out, that's not necessarily the case because it didn't actually lead to much tangibly for Putin himself. Take a listen. And the problem with the previous administration, with President Trump for Vladimir Putin, is fantastic meetings from his perspective. He was able to push all of our political sure. buttons, make fun of us, humiliate us, always have sit-downs that he wanted to or telephone calls, but he never got any kinds of agreements. Right. And so that really, you know, wasn't all that worthwhile. So... He has to get something out of this as well. Something more than just the meeting in Geneva. Oh, man, I'm slightly glad that Fiona Hill doesn't work for the federal government anymore because she can go on the shows and say how it really is. She's like the Scott Gottlieb of Russia. <laughs> she totally affairs. is. Well, we fired her. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so in summary, when I think back on these quality questions from Chuck Todd, the thing that stands out to me is cutting through all of the detail and getting to the meat and potatoes of the question and saying, look, is this really going to happen or what's really going to change this? Or let's be honest here. Is this going to make a difference or what can make a difference? Taking in the big picture doesn't mean you have to forget the details. In fact, it can invite a conversation about the right details. Ooh, very well said. Thanks. And now finally, in journalism. This is where I'm going to flip on Chuck Todd. <laughs> and because what I want to point out is that Meet the Press didn't do a super excellent job covering Juneteenth, but Face the Nation did. What I'm going to do to start here, rather than give a big introduction, is I just want to play for you some meaningful bits of the data download. And... Maybe you as listeners will notice what's a little incongruent here. There were celebrations across the country yesterday marking Juneteenth, which is now a federal holiday. When we come back, how the belated recognition of Juneteenth may tell us as much about our future as it does about our past. We are back. It's data download time, and this time we are marking a new federal holiday. It's the first time a federal holiday has been added to the calendar in over 35 years. But before Juneteenth was a federal holiday, 
It was a state holiday almost everywhere, but that didn't happen overnight. Let me show you the journey of Juneteenth in the states. It began, of course, in Texas in 1980. Of course, Texas was uh, the first state to acknowledge Juneteenth, which, of course, is their acknowledgement that they were the last state essentially to acknowledge emancipation. And then by 1999, three other states were added, Minnesota, Oklahoma, and Florida. It was really in the first decade of this century that momentum for Juneteenth really took off. 30-plus states added it from 2000 to 2009. What's interesting here is just sort of where public opinion has been on this. Overall, just 35% of adults say that Juneteenth should be a federal holiday. But don't mistake that for a lack of support. It's more of a lack of knowledge about it because 40% said they didn't know. In public opinion, that tells you there is a bit of a knowledge gap on the issue overall. What's interesting on this knowledge gap is how much it is by age, a real generational divide. As you can see here, among younger folks, a majority believe Juneteenth should have been a federal holiday. Older folks got the less they thought Juneteenth should do that. And this plays out in other issues involving racial justice, for instance, reparations, the idea that descendants of slaves um, should be compensated. The way this segment was assigned essentially leaned on infer- like public records as opposed to like actual experts who know Juneteenth. It's like a very impersonal. It's so impersonal. Explanation and of what's, Juneteenth. What I found insane was... There was no direct explanation of what Juneteenth is, what its meaning is, why it matters to people. And later, in as we played... His beef is that people don't know what it is. He says people don't know what it is. Well, you didn't explain it. And you say, oh, well, it's older people. Who's watching your show? <laughs> older people. <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about. As you scold them for not knowing. Well, he's not scolding them. He's I just know, saying, he's just he, saying, he has a tone. They don't know what it is. And uh, and I'm going to keep talking to you like <laughs> you know what it is, except you are probably, what if you're one of them? You know, like, They are one of them. Right. Oh, my gosh. It was just like, it was craziness. It was crazy talk. So, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like the Will Ferrell meme. Where's Zoolander? <laughs> where his hair's all crazy. He's like, taking crazy pills. Do you remember? Oh, that's that? right. I remember that. <laughs> that that's that's how he feels sometimes. <laughs> that it was just crazy. So here's on the other side, John Dickerson, who has written history books, and he's literally a historian. Recognizes the value of telling people what history is. Thursday, President Biden signed a bill that made June 19th a federal holiday, and it went into effect on Friday. Juneteenth is the day in 1865 that the last slaves were notified that they had been freed under the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been signed two and a half years earlier. The process of making Juneteenth a holiday followed a similar timeline, long advocated for and privately celebrated, but the final stage was brisk. We asked the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, Lonnie Bunch, to reflect on the importance of Juneteenth. Juneteenth is really a special moment. It's a moment that is really the first holiday we have that celebrates freedom. Um, That is really about helping us understand the fragility of freedom, the importance of freedom, and the struggle for freedom. There's always been this moment, but to suddenly say this is really about helping a nation 
remember something that it often doesn't want to remember and helping a nation honor those people who were enslaved, but they believed in an America that didn't believe in them. Um, this is a special moment for me, so I'm very emotional about Juneteenth. You've dealt with the federal government. Were you surprised how fast this happened at the end? I'm always surprised when things move quickly with the federal government. I think what it tells us is the impact of the last year, of people recognizing that issues of race are not owned by a single community, but rather they shape us all. It is literally night and day. Yeah. Just complete, the facts, the detail, the emotion, the heart, the expert. Yeah. Bonkers, the difference between the two. Isn't that crazy? Same topic. Literally, they were both about a minute and 30 seconds that you heard. Isn't that nuts? That is really wild. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring people's attention when we're talking about how journalists cover a topic just because they're... Like, you could, like, so many times you'll see, like, oh, so-and-so spent eight minutes on this and somebody else spent three minutes or two minutes. And it's like... Okay, that might be an issue, but like when you look at just the quality, the quality of the work, when you look qualitatively and not just quantitatively, it's, it's pretty wild. And this is why it matters, like who these hosts are, what their directions are, what their their choices are. are. Yeah. All of it. So that was, it's like profoundly uncomfortable to like hear them back to back. Isn't it something? It really is. It's, it's, you know, the work really speaks for itself. Yeah, totally. It's crazy. It's crazy. With that, we move on to our dialogue challenge. And how about some dialogue on Juneteenth? Oh, that sounds amazing. You know, I I grabbed off the shelf before this recording a book by Jill Lepore, an excellent single-volume history of the United States that I would highly recommend. She is a an incredible writer and finds very, very interesting little details and moments from history. And I opened it up to try to find some information about emancipation and learned some interesting things in the process. For example, I wasn't aware and was ignorant to the fact that Abraham Lincoln, before he did the Emancipation Proclamation, he pre-announced it 100 days before he was actually going to do it. And there was question about whether he would actually do it. But there was, the, the, the word spread and spread and spread to slaves everywhere about what this was going to mean and what it could do. And some people started rebelling and there was actually a lot of action before it even took place. And she tells this little story here. I, I, let me just read a few sentences. And then there's this moment she talks about Right before the Emancipation Proclamation was to go into effect, which Abraham Lincoln had said would be January 1st, 1863. So listen to this. She writes, In New York, Henry Highland Garnett, the black abolitionist, preached to an overflow crowd at the Shiloh Presbyterian Church. At exactly 11.55 p.m., the church fell silent. The parishioners sat in the cold, in the stillness, counting those final minutes, each tick of the clock. At midnight, the choir broke the silence. Blow ye trumpets, blow, the year of jubilee has come. That's so powerful, you know, to see that image of people 
you know, huddled together in the cold of a church the night before watching the time tick up to midnight and Emancipation Proclamation. So powerful. Absolutely. And I think Jalapur is one historical reference point that you can use that we like to use in this house. But there are so many others. And I think social media makes it easier to find other interesting voices and leaders in this space and even pop culture like even on the show blackish they have an episode kind of explaining juneteenth and it's like a musical and it's beautiful and it's fun and you can watch it with your family and have a conversation about it like it doesn't always have to be heavy to be helpful and it doesn't always have to be so serious to be constructive and you can find resources and learning moments all around us wherever you are with with whomever you are and so we would definitely encourage you to kind of explore your conversations around race and around juneteenth with with a sense of curiosity and celebration absolutely and conversation that too of course always well if you have any curiosities or conversations you want to share with us you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at soto naomi underscore you can tweet at me at Beastidal, and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.